What's up, guys? Hope you're having a great day. This idea of getting sued or being in a lawsuit, it's really a scary idea. I personally have never been involved in a lawsuit, knock on wood, but I know if, you know, that were to come up, it would kind of freak me out. And so, unfortunately, I know a lot of you listening as physicians are extremely likely to be in a lawsuit at some point in your career. And you'll hear from our conversation today, it's for specialists, I think it's like 99%. So it's extremely high percentages of, you know, being named in a lawsuit. So it can be pretty scary. I know we have worked with families that have been involved in lawsuits and you know, that that's the scary part. The good news is there's lots of things you can do now to help reduce the chances of it happening in the first place, or, you know, increase the chances of you navigating through it successfully. There's also some important things to be thinking about to help keep you healthy throughout the whole process because it can be like a super stressful, super unhealthy process. So there's some things to be aware of that I think are important as you navigate through that process. And so to help me tackle this, I think it's a super important topic talking about malpractice risk and like how to navigate it and what to look out for. So to help me tackle this big topic, I brought on my guest today, Christine Zarhova. Christine is an attorney in Florida and has a ton of experience working as a practicing attorney, helping physicians through malpractice lawsuits 15 years. And today, her legal practice is more focused on helping physicians to start their own practices while also bringing that malpractice experience to the table. She also provides one-on-one -on -one coaching to physicians and so physicians, it'd be safe to say physicians are a passion. It's, you know, the majority of her professional work or all of it is dedicated to helping physicians. And so Christine is going to be a great guest. My conversation with her, it was fun. It was, it, there's a lot to it. And I think you're going to get a lot out of it at minimum stuff to think about for the future. So I'm excited to uh, jump into today's conversation with Christine Zarhova. Welcome to Finance for Physicians, a show where we empower physicians like you to practice medicine the way you always dreamed you would. This podcast features doctors, physicians, and experts that share one main thing in common. We believe having control of our finances leads to having control of our lives. In a world where doctors' lives are often dictated by our needs to maximize income, pay back massive student loans, and buy homes, many of us give up reaching those goals. But it doesn't have to be this way. If you are ready to learn how financial wellness creates happier doctors and patients, then I'm your guy. I'm your host and financial expert, Daniel Wren. Let's get started. Christine, how's it going? Hi, Daniel. Good. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm excited to have you on. Thanks for coming on. Of course. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to come talk to you today, and I'm looking forward to it. I think we have a lot to talk about. You have been doing some great work helping physicians, in particular in malpractice work and preparing for that and working through that, and then also some of your work in helping them through burnout. And I know there, I like, I really like what you're doing. You're kind of working more in the preventative world. I mean, like you're not, you are an attorney by trade and I know, I know lots of attorneys and, you know, I would say Christine is like one of the good guys helping, you know, helping you physicians kind of work through these things and also kind of helping with this preventative aspect, not just like doing the legal thing of like getting you through the malpractice lawsuit, but also like the educational thing. That's the part that really struck me with you. Our conversation is you're really helping with like this kind of preventative slash educational aspect of helping to like limit or avoid or prepare for in advance these big, scary malpractice lawsuits that are super common. And it's crazy how common they are. So yes, I think you're right. What are the stats? I mean, it's like 90 plus percent or something, right? Yeah. So if you're in a high risk specialty, you have a 99% chance of being sued by 65. And I want to say it's like 78 or 80% chance of being sued by 49. Now, if you're in a lower risk specialty, I think the stats are like 88%. Don't quote me on it exactly, but it's about 88% by the age of 65. Most physicians in the lower risk specialties will be sued. 
And yeah, I, you know, I've dedicated about 15 years helping physicians to the medical practice claims. And that opened me up to, not opened me up, but that made me realize just how unprepared they are and how stressful it is to overcome these lawsuits. And in some way, physicians have become my passion. I help them in whatever way that I can. Recently, I joined Bird Campbell, which is a law firm in Winter Park, where we do business litigation. And I also help physicians that are starting their own practices, you know, that have questions or need assistance to review their lease agreements, prepare operating agreements, and so forth. So I'm excited that I still get to help physicians, even though it's not in the medical malpractice realm. Yeah. Well, 15 years is a long time, right? Yes. I would consider that a long time. And I think there's a lot to talk about. I mean, that's a, there's a lot of things you're helping physicians with, and I think there's a lot we can talk about, and I think there's going to be really good stuff. But before we get into it, I would love it if you could just share with us kind of like your story. I know you've, you've started to kind of introduce that, but like, how did you get to this point of like having this passion for helping physicians? Sure. Let me take off my Gmail so it stops pinging us. Apologize for that. Okay. Yeah, we get all these notifications going. Yeah, exactly. I turned up my phone too, so we should be good. I started at an insurance defense firm. That's where I was at for about 14 and a half years. And part of my work was helping physicians through medical malpractice claims. I represented doctors, their groups. I represented hospitals. And, you know, what I really enjoyed about the work is being able to be there for physicians not only as legal counsel to help them educate on the law, to help them through the process, to figure out how to structure the case, how to strategize on the case, but also be almost their counselor in some way and mm. be there for them as a human being. Because what you realize is that physicians are, they're very, they're not used to needing help, right? They're not used to asking for help. And when they get into a situation where they're sued, it's very difficult for them to realize that this is the time where you should be asking for help in whatever way that it is. It could be from your spouse. It could be from a friend. It could be from a colleague. But medical malpractice lawsuits carry so much shame with them unnecessarily. And I'd love for it to, I'd love to overcome that at some point. They carry so much shame. And, you know, the, I think the shame component, in addition to the component of not knowing how to ask for help or being, you know, not wanting to ask for help really causes a lot of unnecessary weight and stress on the physician. And so in my role as their defense attorneys, you know, I was always able to be that confidant for them, that person mm -hmm. that was, you know, always there to talk about the case, to talk about how they're feeling and kind of get them into a place in their mind where they're going to be strong, where they're going to feel like, you know, I can do this. I can get through this. You know, it's not going to bog me down. What happens when you don't ask for help? Yeah, I've heard, you know, I've seen some story or I've seen some of my clients who. Or maybe you're too late asking for help. Maybe that's it. Yeah. Yeah, I think it depends. I think it depends on how willing the physician is to open up to the person that's helping them, whether the defense attorney is also, you know, has the ability and the personality and the desire to serve in that role and that every defense attorney wants to do that, along with, uh, you know, how, how great of a rapport the physician builds with their attorney. Because, you know, you mentioned I'm one of the good guys. You're so right. Even though I've only represented physicians, you know, I've only defended physicians in medical malpractice claims. I still, what I realized in speaking to hundreds of physicians in the last few years, some of them still look at me as the bad guy just because they associate an attorney right. as the bad guy. And so for some, it's more difficult to build that rapport than others. And I think that for those physicians that are willing to build that rapport, to talk to their attorney, to really get their teeth sunk into the case and be open with their attorney, that's very helpful in eliminating the risk that there's going to be fallout. And Daniel, yeah. the fallout that I've seen or I've heard about are you know, DUIs right before trial, during trial, you know, you've got physicians leaving the country because they just don't want to deal with it anymore. You've got divorces, you know, and yeah. I've heard of cases of suicide, which is just horrendous that it's actually a part of the occupational hazard. Yeah. It's like anything when you don't deal with it. Yeah. It yeah. builds up and then eventually... Pro makes you prone to a blow up. 
Well, yeah. There's a lot of, and the shame too is a big deal. I mean, I know we, yeah. we hit on that and that just amps it all up, right? I mean, like that just makes yeah. everything worse. It does. And I think that there's a component, like for any professional, you begin to associate your sense of self with what you do for a living. Mm. And, you know, one of the messages that I have for physicians is, you know, you're a physician, but you're also a human. You're a mom, a dad, you know, a son, a daughter, a sister, a brother. Like there's so many other parts to you. And it's so important to remember that, that being a doctor, despite the fact that it's taking the years to go through medical school, residency, you know, board certifications, all of that, it doesn't eliminate, you know, this completely separate person that you are. And it's an independent human being from a physician as a human being, you know, but I think for a lot of physicians, because they don't understand what it means to be sued, they automatically internalize it. And they think that being sued equals to them having done something wrong. And I can Mm. tell you that in my experience of my 15 years, that is not the case in most cases. You know, I've seen lawsuits where the doctor did absolutely nothing wrong. And the case was such of a stretch that it was just, you know, it was difficult to like difficult to know that your client is going through years of litigation on such a BS case, right? Other cases are more gray. There's an argument. There could be an argument that the doctor did something wrong, but there's also an argument they didn't. And it's a gray area. And in those cases, I've also found that most of the time the physician did nothing wrong. In medical malpractice, you are judged by what you knew at the time that you performed, you know, the procedure at the time that you provided your, you know, your recommendations or your opinion to the patient. So it, your, whether or not you complied with a standard of care is based on the information that was available to you at that time. Obviously, by the time that a lawsuit happens, in most cases, there's much more information. So it's very difficult, you know, for physicians to be like, well, I should have done it differently. I could have done this and this and this because they know other information when they're sued. Things that have transpired after the alleged negligent act, so to speak, right, occurred. And so I think that the lack of education in our system to physicians when they're, you know, becoming baby physicians, when they're getting their education, the lack of that explanation of what the process entails what it really means, what the elements are, and how to really judge yourself to truly understand, was I negligent in my care of the patient? You know, Mm -hmm. that is also something that is, that creates this, contributes to that stress. Yeah. I imagine I would take it personally if somebody sued me and Mm -hmm. I would be, feel shame and gravitate towards, I did something wrong, you know, because something would have caused... Even if it was just like, I said something nowadays, it's like you, maybe you say something that offends them, which Uh on top of it, the something was gray and then something unexpected happens. And then all of a sudden, you know, you have a lawsuit. I know you, I remember you mentioned when we were talking last time about one of the best things you can do to avoid a lawsuit. I think we were talking about like relationships. Is that right? Yeah. I think that studies show that one of the biggest risks of a lawsuit is having a bad rapport, bedside manner with a patient or just the patient not liking you. Mm-hmm. You know, patients that like their physician, even when things go wrong, they're less likely to sue that physician. But if they don't like you and things go wrong, and we all know medicine is not black and white, you know, there is a risk associated with every procedure of doing it, of not doing it, of edit every medication, you know, taking it or not taking it. So medicine is not black and white, carries a risk with everything. So if a physician, if a patient does not like their physician, they're more likely to sue them when things go wrong. Yeah. And and that kind of makes me think about the healthcare challenges, especially in primary care. I'm thinking Uh like they're getting squeezed hardcore with like the time per visit aspect. And when you only get seven minutes per patient or whatever it is, like you got no relationship. I mean, it's very, very, very difficult to build a relationship. And oftentimes that also makes it even more abrasive. Not only do you not have a relationship, but like there's these abrasive points in the process, like wait in the waiting room and, you know, maybe mean receptionist. And then they see the physician, which has nothing to do with all that other junk in the system, but they kind of tie it to the doctor because they don't understand what's going on. And then they get the seven minute visit and they're like, this is, and then something unexpected happens. And then yeah. I would say that amplifies it all 
too, like the fact that our system is skewed towards volume and ma maximum volume at all times. It's not skewed towards relationship. Yeah, you are 100% correct. And I hear that from physician clients. I hear that from my own treating physician, that the load or the expectation to see a very high number of patients, it's interfering with their ability to be the best physician that they can be, right? To practice medicine in the way that they want to practice medicine. And you know, in addition to creating issues with the patient, because now you're not able to establish that rapport, now the patient feels like you're rushing, right? In addition to all that, that also causes stress in the physician. And we all know that stress is going to decrease, you know, your ability to be, you know, it's going to, it's going to impede on your ability to be the best, you know, to practice in the best way that you can practice. If you're unhappy, you're not going to be as social as nice to another human being. So it's like a snowball effect, along with the insurance component of it, of course. No, and I know from speaking to you, you know, you have your doctors who do DPC, who have DPC practices versus physicians in your traditional practice of medicine. And in traditional practice of medicine, in addition to everything we talked about, there's also the component of dealing with insurance and having to approve certain procedures and explain why you need it. So it's just, it's a cluster to say the least. Yeah, it's a mess. And I think I would be curious if statistics, I don't know that there, these exist yet, but my suspicion is that direct care practices are getting sued far less mm -hmm. than traditional practices because simply really because their patient panel is much smaller. So then yeah. therefore they get lots of time with them and relationship builds, but I don't yeah, know, I, I haven't seen that. I, yeah, I haven't. I know I was going to look at the statistics before today, but I forgot as well. I'm happy to look it up afterwards and maybe it's got to be lower. The show notes. But I 100% agree with you because you do have a less of a population of your patient. You have better mm. rapport. Patients have better access to you. You know, they can access you via, you know, the text message, obviously confidential text message platform. And some physicians I know see patients at home. They're being seen by the physician versus, you know, one of the staff members. Nothing against staff members, but most patients want to see their physician, right? They want to see the individual with whom they've established care. So I 100% agree when you have your own practice, when you get to see less patients and you get to spend more time with the patient, when you don't have the additional stress of dealing with insurance issues, it's going to be a better environment. It's going to be a better relationship. So I, I don't have the statistics, but I bet $5, mm -hmm. you're correct. You know? Yeah. I would go with $50. Yeah. But right. you know, with inflation. <laughs> the, another thing too, I think I would suspect that burnout also amplifies it or makes, you know, if you're struggling, stressed out, all that. Mm -hmm. So I would think increases your chances, yes. you know, in large numbers of people on average, I would think that increases your chances just because that's makes it more difficult to, if it gets worse, worse it gets, it makes it more difficult to perform. And yeah. then you rub off on people negatively. And yes. it's going back to that original thing. Like, I think, you know, the one thing you can do to reduce chances is have solid relationships with your patient. It Correct. becomes difficult to have that when yeah. you're super stressed about work. Yeah. And I think what you hit to in the head, if you think about it, it's control, right? In your professional practice of medicine, you lack that control. And we know from talking to lots of physicians, that is something that everyone is feeling in the industry, which is contributing to the burnout. It's contributing to physicians fleeing the practice of medicine altogether. And when you have your own DPC practice, you kind of regain that control back. You're not a slave to a non-physician telling you how many patients you should be seeing and how quickly, how much time you're spending, you know, you should be spending with the patient. So hundred mm percent. -hmm. Yeah. It's unfortunate. I wanted to talk about some of the ways to help reduce risks. We already talked about like, you know, relationship with your patients, but you can only go so far in that regard. Mm -hmm. What are some, if I'm like younger, like, let's say I'm just starting in practice and I'm like, listening to this, I'm like, yeah, I mean, 90% is pretty high. Like I don't want to get sued or, or, uh -huh. you know, if it's that high, it's like odds are I'm going to get sued. But what can I do to prepare for it or like lessen the chances of it? Or I don't know, like what are some preventative things we can start thinking about? Yeah, I think documentation is huge. Obviously, it can go both ways. You want to make sure that the documentation that you're 
putting together on the patient reflects the history. It reflects, you know, what you observe, what your assessment was, that there's some explanation for why you're making certain recommendations. Like as an example, let's say you're increasing the dosage for a particular medicine to control pain, right? You want to have an explanation that let's say you tried physical therapy and that failed. You know, you tried cortisone shots and that was not alleviating the patient's system, symptoms, excuse me. So now you're increasing that medication dosage to this amount, something that's going to help you in the event that you're sued to explain that thought process, you know, to explain that you were paying attention, you were getting the information you needed from the patient in order to make a particular decision. So documentation is huge. You don't want to go overboard, right? But you want to make sure that there is sufficient documentation to explain what you saw, what you did, and why you did it. Communication is huge as well. Communication with your patient, communication with your staff members. You know, you want to make sure, depending on what kind of a practice you have, if you have a private practice, that there are policies and procedures that everybody understands and follows in terms of like, you know, let's say a patient called and left a message, right, with the receptionist, right? And then or left a message with the nurse. What's the process for the nurse to communicate with the physician? You know, what's the time frame? Where is it documented? You want to make sure that kind of chain of communication is properly documented. Those are the two kind of things that come up in my mind as a way to prevent it. Your relationship with the patient, that's once again, that's huge. You know, you're not going to spend an hour with each patient. Most physicians won't, right? But you want to have enough time to where the patient feels like you're listening to them, you're not rushing them, and they have a chance to tell you what's going on with them. And you have a chance to process what's going on and really, you know, formulate a plan and explain that plan or explain the different options to the patient in a timely fashion. You know, but you want to make sure that if there's a treatment plan that's surgical or carries kind of a high risk of complications, that you explain that to the patient, you know, that there is a policy in how the patient consents to it. Sometimes physicians will have you know, multiple people get the consent or multiple people sign off on it, like the nurse and the patient, excuse me, and the physician along with the patient, right? Just to establish that there were multiple people that went through it or there was more than just that one person in the room when you went through, you know, the risks associated with certain procedures and the complications that can occur. Those would be one of the yeah. one of the things I think of, I don't even know how possible that is this is in the world of medicine, but I'm sure you've interacted with people where you just know, like in my business, we have the benefit, I guess, of being able to like we kind of pick who we work with. It's not like people mm -hmm. just walk in. We get to go through some sort of a selection process and make sure we have a fit and all that stuff. And it's nice because you get you make sure you have an, you have a good relationship in that on the front end. Mm -hmm. But I in my conversation with tons and tons of people, every once in a while I'll encounter somebody that like you can tell they're kind of, they got a chip on their shoulder and they're like, I've even had people bring up that they've sued people in the past. And I'm, and it was like kind of, a, I don't know. It was just, I got bad feeling. And mm -hmm. I have the nice benefit of being able to be like, I'm not going to work with that person. But like, can you fire patients? You can fire patients. You want to make sure you're complying with your state laws and doing it, you know, but absolutely. I'll give you an example. Most physicians that are sued, you know, after the lawsuit ends, the clinic will fire that patient, right? <laughs> I, hope so. you, I mean, you, you can't have a good rapport. You cannot, you know, continue having a good relationship with your patient if your patient sued you. I don't think it's just, you know, no, it's no, not no. a reasonable, yeah, expectation. But yeah, you could, you could fire a patient, you know, you could be extra careful in how you document things, you know, a lot of physicians will sort of push the ball, like they'll refer them out, you know, because if it's something that can be referred out, even though they can handle it, they'll say, listen, you know, go to the specialist to check this out. So they'll do that. But you want to protect yourself, you know, depending on how big your practice is or what hospital you work with, you know, there's risk management groups can always talk to your risk management group. Additionally, most physicians and practices, you know, they have medical malpractice insurance and you can contact your carrier and see if they have programs or they have a risk manager there, you know, claims representative that you could speak with to get recommendations. And if it's something that is going to require legal advice, you know, some of the insurance companies will put you through to an attorney 
right? That's on their panel, on the insurance company's panel. And you get to sort of talk to that person and get help. But I think you bring up a really good point. You know, if you want to protect yourself and you're not quite sure what to do, call your insurance company, right? See if they have any recommendations, but don't just stick your head in the sand and hope it goes away. Protect yourself, be proactive. Yeah, I think there's some fear in just calling the insurance company. You're like, yeah. or even yeah. telling anyone, if you had like a dicey situation, I mean, is it, I'm trying to imagine like, what's the scenario where I actually want to call the insurance company? You know, for example, if you're saying I'm not comfortable with this patient, you know, this patient was aggressive to me and like, I just want to make sure that we terminate our relationship correctly. Yeah. You know, I don't know the law on this. Alternatively, well, and I com- completely understand people are hesitant to call their carriers because you don't want like your premiums to be jacked up, right? Or yeah. be there on the black on their blacklist. You can call a healthcare lawyer. I mean, you can call right. me, right? In Florida, I can give legal advice. I can do general consults for other states. You know, if it's not, if it doesn't fall within the scope of assessing the right. law of that state. So there's other right. attorneys that you can call if it's something that you don't want your insurance carrier to to know about and i've done plenty of that for physicians that reach out you know if i can help attorney would probably be the best and they can Mm -hmm. make sure your craft you're wording it in a appropriate way and the some of the best so you know the good attorneys that i've worked with are very professional and like they're not like hateful you would if you haven't worked with attorneys you think sometimes there's this impression that they're going to be angry and mean and but like the good ones are respectful and like almost like loving in their wording it's a they're just very good with words and putting them together so that it's like said in a nice way and something i could i'm not close to even skilled enough to be able to convey that sort of meaning so i think in in any time things get dicey that's where you know it's helpful to have attorneys involved now if you're to like a big giant hospital i think you would probably have to talk to some people with the hospital or administration and i don't know how receptive they would be to that. But I would imagine if they could be. I think that they are. Because you have to remember, if a physician who is employed by the hospital is sued, the hospital is going to get sued as well, right? So risk management for most hospitals will be, I mean, in my experience, risk management at the hospital is very receptive. They're going to give guidance and they're going to handle it. So if a termination letter is going to be sent to a patient, it's not going to be a physician that signs it. It's going to be, you know, from their neurology department or whatever, you know what I mean? It's going to be from their department and they know how to, they likely handled that and done that in the past. So they have form letters or Mm. if there's something specific that they're not sure about. And once again, they want to make sure they're not violating any laws. They're going to reach to their counsel because every Mm. attorney, you know, they have different counsel that they use for litigation or transactional stuff. So they'll handle that. So I would strongly urge anyone who is like, you know, I'm not sure how to handle this. I'm not comfortable. I'm concerned about the possibility of litigation to to talk to the risk management department. Yeah, especially if there's warning signs. If you're just like getting these feelings that mm-hmm. you're like, eh, this is, yeah, they're the type of person that's adversarial or whatever. And like me, my person I'm thinking of, like they had said they'd sued multiple people in the past. I'm like, if you've sued people in the past, like you're probably mm-hmm. pretty litigious. open to doing it. Litigious is the right word. Yeah. Yep, uh, yep. And that's, that's probably not a, a good thing. Yeah. But what, how does it work when you get sued? I don't like, what's the first thing that happens when you get sued? So it depends on what state you're in. If you're in Florida, statutorily, we have a statutory framework that has to be followed and it's a pre-suit. So before you can even file a lawsuit, there are several steps that the attorney who will be bringing a lawsuit on behalf of the patient or the family members has to get through. And basically they have to send a letter that sets forth what they believe occurred that was negligent, how it caused the... Well, to whoever, like if it's to to the clinic, for example, the physician directly, if it's a solar physician or the hospital. So they will serve the pre-suit letter that Mm. outlines what they believe happened and how that caused whatever the injuries are. And that letter has to be accompanied by a corroborating affidavit of an expert who is in the same or substantially similar specialty as you are. So if the lawsuit is against a primary care physician, 
you know, the accompanying affidavit has to be from a primary care physician versus an internal medicine physician, right? If a lawsuit is against a cardiologist, you need a cardiologist to corroborate what your position is and what you believe the physician did wrong. So basically it's like, here's, we're suing you and here's why, and we've got an expert in your area that's agreeing with us or confirming this. Correct. And it doesn't have to be in your area in Florida. The expert can be anywhere. So as long I as I guess they, I meant like your specialty when I said your yes. specialty. Yeah. Correct. And it could be anywhere in the country. Correct. Exactly. And so then they have 90 day tide period within which you do an investigation. So the other side, the physician, you know, the physician's attorney or the risk management has an opportunity to complete an investigation of the claims. And during that process, there is the physician's team will hire corroborating expert or an expert to look at the allegations, to review the medical records, and to give opinions as to whether or not they believe the physician was in fact, you know, breached the standard of care in causing those injuries. Sometimes you need two separate physician, physician experts, like if the standard of care issue is different from causation, right? Like there's two specialties involved. So sometimes you have more than one expert to corroborate the physician's position that there was no breach in the standard of care, that they were not negligent or that they did not cause the injury. And during that 90-day process in Florida, we exchange informal discovery in the forms of questions. So you ask questions of the patient, the patient gets to ask you questions. There's usually unsworn statements that are done, which is just parties get together, there's a court reporter, they ask the physician questions about what happened, what they did, why they did it. And then the physician's lawyer will also do the same with the patient or the patient's family members to figure out exactly what the claims are going to be, what the damages are, you know, how is the patient doing now? Does the patient, is the patient going to claim that they had some communication with the physician that makes the physician look bad? You know what I mean? Things that you may not necessarily glean from the letter, the pre-suit letter that sets forth what the patient thinks you did wrong and the corroborating affidavit, there could be additional information the patient has that's not going to be identified in that letter and in the affidavit. So you want to find that out before a lawsuit happens. And then the framework, every state is different, but in Florida, you know, you could either deny the pre-suit, which is what happens in most cases. You could make an offer to settle or you could agree to arbitrate the case. So, you know, once that 90 day period is done, then the patient can bring the lawsuit. But the patient in Florida cannot file a formal lawsuit until they engage mm. in this pre-suit investigatory period. Do you know if other states, do most states have that like pre-trial or pre-lawsuit pre stuff? Pre-suit? A lot pre of them do. Yeah. But I also know there are states that don't, and that's where it gets you know, that's where you hear stories of a physician having, you know, dinner with their family for Thanksgiving and there's a knock on the door and there's a process server who's like, Dr. Jones, I'm so sorry, here it is, right? And you get served and they're like, oh my gosh, what just happened? That's And they garbage. feel like, yeah, but that's what happens a lot. So it's like, and then what ends up happening, and this is something I want to mention, a physician skips this lawsuit, Right. And there's these allegations of what they did wrong and these words that sound so bad and they start to, to feel like, oh my gosh, like I did this or I'm being accused of this. And they read this document as like, you know, some authority. Meanwhile, it's a complaint drafted by a lawyer. Most of the stuff in it is form. It's not, you know, something specifically against you. Now it will contain a factual background, right, of what you've mm -hmm. done wrong. But you have to remember that the legal term is used by the lawyer, right? We draft, we put that in the complaint to make sure it passes the muster of not getting kicked out. So it's really a procedural vehicle to bring a lawsuit in. And mm. even the affidavit of an expert, right? You, physicians may look at it like, oh my gosh, Dr. Jones, who is also a neurologist in New Jersey, thinks that I did X, Y, Z. Most of the time, the affidavit is drafted by a lawyer. Now it's done with the assistance of the expert based on their opinion, but it's drafted by a lawyer. So, you know, one comment that I have for lots of physicians is don't think of it as, you know, this document that was prepared by a colleague of yours, right? It, mm -hmm. it has to be framed in a certain way 
to pass the legal muster. So don't take it personally. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, Ren Financial Planning. Want to hear something cool? My team at Ren Financial Planning has consistently told me that the listeners of this podcast are their favorite people to talk to. Did you know that you can set up a no-cost triage meeting with one of our amazing CFPs at Ren Financial Planning anytime and talk about your biggest financial questions? We can discuss things like considerations for transitioning into practice, getting the best bang for your buck buying a house, the smartest way to pay off student debt, or tips on maximizing your compensation package. Or maybe you'd love a second set of eyes to help look over your tax return or investment allocations. Maybe you'd just like a general second opinion from your existing advisor. Either way, our role in this meeting will be to listen to your concerns and help you start to identify potential actionable next steps so that you can start to make solid progress addressing those concerns as quickly as possible. Schedule a meeting now. You'll see a link in the show notes. And when you do, make sure to indicate you found us from Finance for Physicians. We look forward to talking to you. Okay, let's get back to our show. Yeah, I imagine I'd take it personally when I just because it's like somebody yeah. it, they want you to. I think. I mean, even that's how it's. I don't know. It feels like it would be designed to do that. And the other thing too is the person writing it is also getting paid. But it's like uh-huh. they're on the team of the person filing mm-hmm. the lawsuit. Oh so yeah, like the other team. I mean, it's not like the police. That's the other thing. I think there's maybe this conception. It's like a neutral party, or <laughs> it's already been reviewed by the court, or whatever i'm sure there is some sort of i mean can you just send a law in the even in the states where there's no pre-trial thing like Mm -hmm. how do they file a lawsuit can they just like straight up sue anybody or yeah i think in states that i don't i can't give legal you know advice or even because i haven't researched this for every state but basically they just file a lawsuit just like you would in a car accident case you know their lawsuit it's, gets it's filed. not that difficult. I guess what I'm trying to say is it's not that difficult to file a lawsuit. It's not. No. I mean, right. you just file a lawsuit. You have to file a, you have to pay a filing fee. You prepare that you draft the complaint, you file it with the court, you know, with the courts, and then you pay whatever the filing fee is. And then you pay the process server or the sheriff or whatever it is in your state to serve it on, on the physician with hospitals. Well, I mean, at least in Florida, based on my experience, when a physician who is employed by the hospital, you know, when they're sued, the hospital will accept the the summons and the complaint on their behalf. So it doesn't, mm. it's not as personal, you know, a lot of times a, an attorney can accept the lawsuit on your behalf too, which I strongly recommend. You know, even in Florida, if you are aware that a lawsuit is going to happen because we have this pre-suit statutory period. So it's going to put you on notice that a lawsuit is likely happening. During that time frame, you will be assigned a lawyer and you could ask that lawyer to accept service of the complaint should be served on your behalf. So you mm-hmm. don't have to deal with the embarrassment of being served at your office, yeah. you know, at a restaurant or wherever. And, you know, Daniel, if we can go back to something, this whole concept of the lawsuits feeling personal. And I 100%, 100% understand why it was, right? I'm a lawyer. Lawyers get sued, but not to that same, you know, level of frequency that physicians get sued. But if I got sued, I'd imagine that it would be very personal. Never have been, knock on wood, but I'm sure it would be very personal. So I don't fault physicians for feeling that way. The words of wisdom that I would, or the recommendation that I would have is that by, if you can overcome that feeling, and if you can work through it and if you could make it not personal, that's going to help you succeed in your lawsuit. Now, when I say succeed, I don't mean 100% winning the lawsuit. What I say, when I say succeed, what I mean is the way that it affects you, the way that the lawsuit, which is a very lengthy marathon of a process, the way it affects you on a personal level as, as a human, as a parent, as a you know, a a son or daughter as a professional and as, you know, the way it affects how you view yourself, how you Mm -hmm. view who you are as a physician, how you view your abilities, how you start thinking about what you want from your future. What I see with physicians is this tendency, you know, when a lawsuit happens and because it's so long, 
it wears you down. You know, in the beginning, you're maybe like, it's fine. But as the years roll by and, you know, every time you get that email from your lawyer yeah. or your yeah. risk manager and you got to be prepped for your deposition and then your deposition gets canceled and you got to be re-prepped again and you have to go to trial and it gets continued. And then you got to go to trial again. That is very like it wears on physicians. Right. And if they never overcome that feeling of treating it as personal, it's going to wear on you more. And it really, it's a toxic feeling that permeates every fiber of your existence. And it's going to, whether you realize it or not, it's going to affect every aspect of your life, you know? And some of the work that I've been doing with physicians on the coaching side is helping them, you know, overcome that so they don't get to it, you know, so they don't, they, don't, they can get through that. But you don't need a coach. You know, you, once again, you can go to a, a friend. But a coach a might be good. Yeah. I mean, that might be the best. That might be a fantastic time when you're at a point in life where it's like turning point. You could go one yeah. way or the other. A coach Absolutely. could be, would, I would say a coach would be excellent. That's the time if you haven't worked yeah. with a coach to work with a coach. Yeah, I agree. Having somebody objective that has knowledge in how lawsuits, you know, roll out in different stages of lawsuits and what it causes yeah. can be very helpful. Especially yeah. if they have experience. I mean, like your services and where you're at, like if I'm, if I was in that point in that scary initial phase of lawsuit uh -huh. and I had a relationship with you, you're the first person I'm calling. I'm like, I got oh. the letter. Like I need, yeah. I need help. Cause you know, you need somebody that, so you, you have the coaching experience and you have the malpractice experience working through the claims and that's yeah. that's a huge benefit but like i think what can be i haven't gone through this but i feel like there could also be a tendency maybe that's not the natural tendency people have maybe the natural tendency is like people are like i'm gonna bury my head in the sand or like i'm uh -huh. gonna like fake it till i make it or like i'm just gonna pay, not pay attention to this and like set it aside and do nothing about it yes or only the yeah. minimum required maybe yes yeah, 100%. I've seen all of that. And it's it definitely has a huge negative effect on how you perform in your lawsuit and the results of that lawsuit. Because here's what I can tell you. When physicians are on it, when they establish a good rapport with their attorney and they are active and proactive in their lawsuit, they know the medical records, they're talking to their lawyer about what they're concerned about or, you know, talking through things. What ends up happening, Daniel, in every case is they realize like that reinforces their enlightenment that they did nothing wrong, right? Because every time you see facts, because you're going through those medical records and you're like, no, I didn't breach the standard of care. No, this was correct. Here's what I knew. Here's the decision that I made. Here's the recommendation that I made. Here's where I talked to the patient. You know, when they start to see and put together all those facts, it reinforces their understanding that they did not breach the standard of care. And that okay. is the most, one of the most helpful things you can do for yourself. You know, it's, it's otherwise, if you stick your head in the sand and you don't know the records, I mean, defense attorneys, medical malpractice defense attorneys, we understand medicine, but you're the best expert in that case. It's not the other attorney. It's not the other expert. It's not your lawyer. It's you because you're the only person that was there and you're the only person, you know, you're the only person that has the medical qualifications, right? The medical experience and background and personal knowledge of that patient. No mm -hmm. one else treated that patient. No one else saw that patient. No one else truly has the entire picture that you do because you were the one that had a physical, you know, contact with the patient. So, you know, you have to remember that. So, yeah. I think the other thing I'd do when I got the letter is mm -hmm. I'd... If I hadn't done this already a lot before, I would go to my malpractice yeah. insurance and I'd be oh, like, yeah. I'm going to read this thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. If you get served, you know, in Florida for solo practitioners, if they receive a letter like that, they have to contact their carrier right away. That's like the number one mm -hmm. thing. Call your carrier. If you don't know who your carrier is, figure out who your broker is. Figure out which company you've been paying medical malpractice insurance to. You know, you should have a deck sheet that shows the coverage and the name of your insurance carrier. Call like them right away. Like even if you work at a hospital, you get their policy that covers you. So right. with hospitals, they have, oftentimes they have a self-insured retention. It's basically they insure, they self-insure up to a certain point and then they'll have excess insurance coverage on top of that. So 
in a hospital setting, usually the letters will go to the hospital directly and it will be the hospital letting you call, the risk management team will call you and say, hey, Dr. Jones, we got this letter, come have a meeting so we could talk about it. But you can get a hold of their policies, right? I mean, like. It, well, if it's a self-insured retention, it's basically the hospital is paying for everything. They would be paying for the defense fees and they're also paying for any, you know, settlement award, negotiated yeah. award or judgment up to a certain point, right? I guess, I mean, million. I guess at minimum, I would yeah. just want to understand it. Like, I would want to know, like, mm -hmm. are there situations or exclusions where I could potentially be liable in some instance? And maybe the only answer to that is like fraud or I don't know, some crime or something like that. Yeah. But I would yes. still want to know those. And then I would also want to know, like, what's the limit of your, you know, and how does it work? Or is, is there any things in between? And that, I mean, if you have yeah. your own practice, you go pull out your policy and it's like a written yes. document. Yeah. 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 Those are the questions you could pose to your risk management team. If you are, you know, work at a hospital, the nice part about working in a hospital is that their self-insured retention is usually really high. And then they have excess limit on top of that. So unless it's a criminal act like battery, assault, you know, or something like fraud or something like that, where they may say there's no coverage for that criminal act, you know, you're not going to be on the hook personally. Also, at least in Florida, what our carriers and our hospital, not our carriers, excuse me, what our hospital would try to do for its employee physicians is to get their name but get them dismissed before the case is over, right? Because ultimately it comes from the same pocket of money. And that way nobody has to contact, you know, nobody has to report that there was a lawsuit against a physician. You'll have to disclose it, you know, you may have to disclose it, but nobody has to deport it to the database, data bank, the practitioner data bank, that there was a lawsuit filed. And, you know, especially like your resident, residents get sued all the time, right? Like the last thing you want as a resident to have the lawsuit pending over your head and then the party settling or going to trial and you're still a named party. So that is something nice that hospitals try to do for their employee physicians. Yeah, I guess that, it, that that's a perk to working at a large system. Yes, yes. I would love it if you could share some of, I mean, maybe you can't do this, but like I, I would, I love stories. And if there's mm -hmm. stories that come to mind of like, you know, success stories or challenges. I think there's all kinds of experiences we can learn for, from other people. Ideally, you know, that's how we learn. Yeah. Have you had some stories that you're able to share or maybe like, you know, taking out personal info, but like stories of people that, that really come to mind as far as like people that like were able to work through that in a positive light or, you know, lessons learned, that kind of thing? I think about that. So stories particularly like the malpractice thing and i mean yeah. i can i have examples of people that we've worked with that i know that have had challenges with it like one thing that comes to mind for us is like there is seems to be this fear of like not wanting to talk about it because so we're the financial planner and we've right. had people we work with have lawsuits and i feel like there's this as soon as they get that lawsuit somebody somewhere tells them i think not to talk to anybody yeah. And maybe they don't say it that way, but like, so we hear of it and they're like, yeah, but I, I can't really say much about it. And yeah. that seems weird to me. Cause I'm like, you gotta be able to talk to somebody and like, you really can't talk to anybody. Like, how does that work? And why is that happening? Yeah. So it, it's true. So you're, when you're sued, your defense attorney is going to tell you, do not speak to anyone about your lawsuit. And the reason why they say that is because anything about your lawsuit that you're discussing with a non-lawyer, it's discoverable, right? Mm. The reason that the information that you talk to your lawyer about is not discoverable is because there's attorney-client privilege, right? However, what most attorneys, I don't think it's intentional, I think they just don't realize it, but what most attorneys don't realize is that physicians need to understand the difference between talking about matters and things that are in fact attorney-client privilege, right? Talking about the specifics of the case in terms of liability, exposure, you know, strategy versus how you feel about the case, right? Yeah. That's something that is not attorney-client privilege, how it's affecting you as a, as a person, as a professional. That's also not attorney-client privilege. That's just the fact that the lawsuit has on you that has no relevance to the case that's not something you need to ever talk about to the other side 
Yeah, so I think people lock it all up. They lock up yeah. the whole thing. Like the yeah. So they're like, I can't share emotions or feelings or yeah. anything, period, yeah. about it. Yeah. And then Correct. that's not and healthy. <laughs> I've worked with a lot of physicians who come to me and they're talking about, they're concerned about how their case is being handled and they just want some consulting. They want like a second set of eyes on it, right? That's yeah. another thing too is is not everyone, not every physician gets a establishes a good rapport or gets an attorney that they, you know, communicate well with. And sometimes you may question, you know, should I be, should I keep on with this case? Like, is this really what's done? I'll give you an example. One physician that came to me, she was really concerned because her policy, I think was a million dollars and the demand was like $10 million. So the exposure potentially was really, really high. She didn't end up going to her mediation for whatever reason. She was excused, which can happen. But in a case where the demand is so high and your policy limits are only a million dollars, like she should have been encouraged to go to the mediation to know what's going on. Who didn't um, go? The attorney didn't go? The, the, no, the physician. So the physician that was sued did not end up going to the mediation where it's, you know, proceeding where you tried to resolve the case. Oh, right? and yeah. And it would probably be best practice to go to that, especially yeah. given the circumstances. Oh. Correct. It depends. You know, I've had physicians excused for from medical from excuse me from mediations, like in my hospital cases. Mm -hmm. But if you're in a smaller practice, especially when you're facing a demand for ten million, but your coverage is only a million, right? So trying to get more money of you out of you than you have coverage for, you really want to stay on top of that lawsuit. You really want to know what's going on. Yeah. And so she ended up not going to her mediation. And she was so concerned. It was like eating her alive every day. You know, she was just thinking and circling back and, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? You know, are they going to take this to trial? And am I going to be dealing with an excess verdict, you know, an excess of my limit? And she didn't realize that she could make a demand on her insurance company to settle the case within the policy limits because she learned later that was an option. So she learned later that during mediation, the attorney for the patient was willing to accept her policy limit, but she wasn't there. And so her carrier said no. So this poor physician lived with that for, for you know, whatever months or a year afterwards, not realizing that she as their insured could make a demand oh, on the, the insurance. In, the physician themselves could have accepted yeah. that. So, so, oh. you know, so the physician herself could have made a demand on her insurance company to settle for the policy limits. And what happens is if you make that demand and if the insurance company does not settle for policy limits, then any verdict in excess of the policy, the insurance company is on the hook for because it's mm. called bad faith. So if your insurance company could have resolved the matter within the policy limits, right, they have a duty to protect you and to resolve the matter within the policy limits, right? If they fail to do that and you make a demand for them to do that, and they don't do it, now they're on the hook for called bad faith. Okay. So now they're responsible for whatever amount, you know, the judgment in excess of the policy limits. Most doctors hmm. don't know that. So there are certain things that you have to do as a physician to properly communicate who to should your have, carrier. So the attorney, who's, who dropped the ball in that? Was it the attorney? I mean, to me, so in, in my practice, if a physician, let's say there's a demand that's above the policy limit, in a non-hospital case, right? And look that they have coverage for a million and now you have, you know, significant damages because let's say it's a child who survived and needs a lot of medical treatment and their parents have to take care of that child or whatever, right? So the damages could be really high. And if I have a physician who's really worried about the case and is like, I want it settled. I am concerned that I'm gonna be on the hook for excess damages. I would tell that physician, that you have the ability to go hire personal counsel and that personal counsel who has experience in medical malpractice will write a letter to the insurance company. It's called a hammer letter. And they will demand that, you know, if you have the ability to settle this case within the policy limits, we hereby demand that you do so and protect the physician who is your insured because a carrier has a good faith obligation to protect their insurance. So I, you know, in, in that particular example, if she was my physician 
who I was defending in a medical malpractice lawsuit. And if she was so concerned about what she was concerned about, I would tell her, go talk to a higher personal counsel, have them review it and have them send a letter to the insurance company. Because your medical malpractice insurance attorney, they're hired by the carrier. So the insurance carrier pays their bills, but it's you, the physician, and it's your practice who we have a responsibility to. We have a duty to you. We don't have, I mean, we have a duty to your insurance company because they hired us, but you are our client. It's not the insurance company. So while I wouldn't be able to write a letter like that to the insurance company because they hired me, in my mind, I have a duty to tell my client that you can do that. You just need to go hire another attorney. Yeah. And my skeptical side would be like, I don't trust the insurance company attorney. Well, I mean, I would be skeptical of their, or I know there's bias or incentives and, you know, stuff. People don't always work perfectly in your interest. And so, you know, I could see it being tempting in any case to get a second opinion or especially when it's big numbers you're yeah. talking about. Yeah. You know, in, in my practice and in my prior firm's practice, I don't think we ever, you know, we were never concerned about that because once again, the duty is to the client and the client is the physician in their practice. And, you know, all that I'm really advising is you have a concern and you have the right to go to another attorney and discuss with that other attorney if it makes sense for you to send a hammer letter, right? You know, if a carrier called me out on that, I'd say, that's my, you know, my responsibility is to tell the client they have that right. What they do with it is up to them. I'm not doing anything that is, you know, that hurts the, I mean, it's really, to me, I'm not doing anything that's in conflict with either the insurance company or the physician, right? But I do have that obligation. I think some attorneys don't, I don't know, maybe they don't know that. If they're a young attorney, they may not fully know that. Yeah, You know, I mean, maybe some attorneys do have concern that if they tell that to the physician, the insurance carrier is going to know that it was the defense attorney that, you know, advised. And they're like, the we're never hiring you again. <laughs> yeah, but it shouldn't be that way. I mean, I mean, it if, shouldn't, if that, but like, yeah. you know. Yeah, you know. people can be right. I mean, I think most most medical insurance carriers that I work with, I mean, they're very, they, they do things in good faith. They're very good with their mm -hmm. physicians. They care about their physicians. So like the carriers that I have worked with, I can't see them getting upset about that at all. They know what the deal is. They know I have a duty to the client, you know, but are there carriers that are not like that? I'm sure there are, you know, I've just been fortunate enough to work with great carriers that care about their insurance. Yeah. I think I, I've seen some statistics before kind of along these lines of like, you know, the statistics of lawsuits are really high. Like a lot of the, you know, high majority of physicians get sued but then it's a pretty big jump downward of lawsuits that actually pay money to the person suing or the patient and then the big number cases are a much lower number from that i don't know the statistics i just remember seeing a visual of all of it and it was like shocking how like the big huge scary ones as soon as you get the letter you think about the big huge scary number mm -hmm. you're like i gotta pay millions of dollars and you know it's gonna be terrible and that's, you know, I mean, those things happen, but like the percentage of those that actually play out is a pretty low number, right? Yeah. So actually, let me pull up my, some of the stats that I have saved in my computer here. So, okay. So 99% of physicians in high risk specialties will be sued by 65 and then 75% physicians in low risk specialties will be sued by 65. And then based on the data collected between 1991 and 2005, which is a little bit old, but only 22% of claims result in payments to claimants. So out of all the lawsuits that, you know, are filed, only 22% of them get paid on, which means that they're dropped or they go to trial and the physician wins the, you know, the jury's, the jury verdict is in favor of the physician. What's really interesting is that most physicians will spend 10 to 25% of their career in litigation. That kind of goes back to what I was saying, that it's such a lengthy process that wears you down, that whatever you do, you know, the recommendation that I have is find whatever it is that you need to help you through it. That's so insane. Like you're, it's insane. Like your neurosurgeons, right? High-risk specialties will likely have more than one lawsuit in their lives. And so when they... Whatever research was done on it, 
when they compound it all together, 25% of their careers will be spent litigating yeah. and defending themselves, which is really tough or tough profession. Yeah. 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 Well, that's where, so you're, I want as we wrap up, I know we're running out of time, but I wanted to talk about some of the stuff you're doing and particularly, I know you have your law firm and that sort of thing, but can you tell us about some of, I know you're helping with some coaching and that's kind of something yeah. you've been working on. If you could tell us about that, that'd be awesome. Sure. So I actually, you know, recently I decided that I'm still coaching position, but that I would like to also help physicians if they're starting their own practices. I think that more and more physicians, when I go that way, I think there's a need to have someone that you can talk to through things, can learn about the law in your state. And so I'm also helping on that side of it. And it could be from helping to, you know, looking at a, a lease agreement, for example, with a physical, you know, if you're trying to lease space and you have a lease agreement, at times physicians will just sign off on it, which is not the way to go. You want on the attorney to look at it and to kind of guide you through it and tell you where the pitfalls are. You know, helping physicians review their contract, their employment contract for non, you know, in the non-compete, their employment contract as it relates to their non-compete provision and mm. other provisions that may affect their ability to start their own practices. And then once they start their own practices, helping them create documents, you know, for that practice and navigate the system. So in addition to that, I also coach physicians. I coach physicians on general issues, and I also coach physicians that are going through Department of Health complaints or they're in a lawsuit. So, you know, combination, you know, I'd like to help. I like to help in whatever way that I can. I've been doing it for a long time, and I'm just thinking of other ways where I can use my experience, my expertise, and continue doing so in a larger, you know, in, in a larger way. Yeah, I imagine there's a lot of people I didn't, well, you just said the statistic, apparently a very large percentage of people going through active lawsuits. And I think yep. that would be a super valuable, like we were saying earlier, like to have a coach that has experience with that yeah. would be super valuable, Absolutely. you know, just kind of working through it. Cause it's like psychologically tough. I mean, like yeah. that's not a yeah. pleasant experience by any means. Correct. But. Correct. Do you and do you that in to... all states or are you just, I know your law practice is Florida only or yeah. is? Yeah, Florida only. Coaching, yes, I can do that in any state that, in any state, because it's not giving legal advice, right? We don't right. talk about the specifics of your case, what your lawyer is doing, legal analysis, exposure and that kind of stuff. And one thing that I want to mention too, you know, sometimes people have this like negative view on coaching. You don't have to sign up for a year package, right? You could just get a couple of coaching sessions and see if that helps you or get them as needed. You know, sometimes, you know, you are, it becomes more stressful at certain parts in litigation. You know, it may be in the beginning. It may be as you're preparing for your deposition or before trial or before mediation. And you want to make sure like you, you owe it to yourself to be on your best mental game. And I mean, physicians are so smart. You know your stuff, right? And the only reason why you may not perform to the best of your abilities during certain parts of litigation, like a deposition, is because your mental game is off. And so, you know, what, like I said, whether it's a coach, whether it's somebody else, but get the help that you need to feel like prepared, to feel strong, to feel like, you know what? I can take this. I know I've done nothing wrong. I've reviewed my records. I know my stuff. I'm going to go into the deposition, tell the truth and explain what I did and why I did it in a cohesive, coherent fashion and feel good about doing it. Yeah. That's like going into a high performance athletic event. It's like you're going yes. into like the world series, you know, it would be, it's super important to have a good coach and probably even like, you know, tailored to the situation. And that's yeah. what, I mean, athletes do it all the time, but I think Absolutely. that's- and doctors don't, and no one prepares them for it, right? Like they have no training. Yeah, I wrote an article for Kevin MD analogizing medical malpractice lawsuit to running a marathon, but marathoners are prepared to run it and they get coaching and they get mm. support. Physicians are not prepared to go through litigation and then they don't get the support going through it. And that's the part that needs to change at some point. Yeah. Yeah. Especially at that point in your life, that's like, like I was saying, if you haven't had coaching before, like if anything, like that's the time where you really need to get it. Yeah. I'm a fan of it. I think it's valuable at any point in your life. Yes. But yeah. if any time, if you haven't gotten it, like when that sort of event happens, 
That's super important. Where can people find you information on you or reach out to you with questions or that yeah. sort of thing? Absolutely. I mean, if you just Google my name, Christine Zaroba, Z-H-A-R-O-B-A, you could find me on my law firm's website. I also have the MedMail game, which is my coaching website on LinkedIn. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. I haven't been in mm. a while, but I'm checking my LinkedIn page. So you could always reach out via the direct message on LinkedIn. And like I said, I'm happy to help in whatever way that I can. You know, if I can't help you, I'll let you know. If I can help you quickly or not quickly, you know what I mean? I'm happy to help in whatever way. And yeah, so, you know, anytime anybody needs anything, I'm here. I appreciate what you're doing. You're doing great work. Thank and you. I appreciate you coming on today to talk through this. I know there's a lot within this. We've kind of hit the tip of the ice, iceberg. It's... I appreciate you chatting with me today, Christine. Yeah. Thank you so much, Daniel, for having me. It was a pleasure talking to you as always and happy to help. You've been listening to Finance for Physicians. To make sure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to our show in your favorite podcast player. On this show, we believe that when you prioritize your finances, you take better care of yourself, have more fulfilling relationships with your families, and most importantly, provide higher quality care for your patients. If you feel this way too and want to learn more, then make sure to join our community. Follow the Finance for Physicians Facebook group for bonus content and sneak peeks on next week's episode. Thanks for listening.